I would like to start uh, my presentation today by thanking OTJR for inviting me to be a guest speaker here today. The paper that I'm presenting today is entitled Nunca Mas, The Politics of Transitional Justice in Argentina and Uruguay, 1983-2011. And this paper is a continuously revised and updated version of one of the chapters of my PhD thesis that I completed in January 2010. The paper attempts to trace the origins and the later evolution of policies of transitional justice in Argentina and Uruguay between the years of the democratic transition and present time. As I hope I'll be able to show you during my presentation, issues of transitional justice in these two countries are still very much present in present days. In 1983, Argentina was one of the first countries to emerge from military rule at the dawn of the era of transitional justice. Argentina is generally considered as a global protagonist in transitional justice, a deserved label in light of the country's remarkable evolution from systematic human rights violations in the 1970s to the pioneering developments with accountability and justice in the 1980s, 90s and the 21st century. On the other hand, Uruguay, despite having a long tradition of democratic rule, chose a path of amnesty and oblivion in confronting the, crime, the crimes of its recent past of military rule. So this paper uh, really aims uh, to look at two uh, research questions. The first one, why do we see almost opposite approaches of transitional justice in Argentina and Uruguay during the early years of the democratic transition in the mid-1980s? And secondly, how can we account for the later evolution of transitional justice policies in these two countries over the past three decades? I wanted to say a couple of words about uh, methodology. Um, the paper relies upon two fieldwork trips to Argentina and Uruguay uh, carried out in the summers of 2007 and 2008. But then, um, after uh, completing my PhD thesis, I also went back a couple more times to both countries in 2009 and 2010. So during these various trips to the region, I carried out over 60 semi-structured interviews with various individuals. And I was really lucky to interview some of the key figures associated with uh, transitional justice and politics in Argentina and Uruguay. I interviewed the former Uruguayan president Sanguinetti and also Alfonsin's human rights advisor, Jaime Malamud Gotti. I also interviewed the secretary of the CONADEP uh, Commission, various um, other politicians, academics and journalists, as well as human rights groups, and finally two of the judges that prosecuted the military junta in, uh, in Argentina in 1985. In the paper, I use an explanatory framework that I developed as part of my larger PhD thesis project. And this framework um, 
unpacks several dynamics, factors and actors at the national, regional and international levels, which I think are helpful in understanding the emergence and evolution of transitional justice policies. And this explanatory framework has uh, various elements, and for the purpose of today's paper, I'm only looking at a number of them, and these are the mode of transition, the new government, the armed forces, civil society, the role of the judiciary, and international and regional developments. So going back to the main argument, what I'm trying to present to you today is that um, as far in my research, um, I, I've come up with this uh, conclusion that we can uh, identify three phases of transitional justice in Argentina and Uruguay between the mid-1980s and present. The first phase uh, roughly covers uh, the 1980s and I've labeled it truth and justice versus silence. The second phase uh, covers uh, the 1990s up to the first few years of the 21st century, and I called it uh, fighting silence. And finally, the third phase covers um, the present time, starting in 2003 for Argentina and 2005 for Uruguay, and I defined it as the present challenge of transitional justice. And I'm going to talk about each of them in turn in a moment, but I wanted to say a little bit about the historical background in Argentina and Uruguay. And I, I don't really have much time to go into um, detail on this question, but I still wanted to, see, uh, to say a couple of things. So the first point to keep in mind is that um, military rules, military rule at, at this time is very much a regional event in the sense that the whole of the region of South America went through a context of military regimes, starting from Paraguay, where the military coup occurred in 1954, then Brazil in 1964, finally Chile and Uruguay in 1973, and the last one, Argentina and Bolivia in 1976 and 1978, respectively. All of these regimes existed on the backdrop of the Cold War and particularly shared ideological inspiration from the uh, national security doctrine that emanated from the United States. And this doctrine emphasized the fight against international communism and its internal allies. Furthermore, the East and West global confrontation was not only happening at the international level between the United States and the Soviet Union, but actually what the national security doctrine emphasized was that the global Cold War was also being fought inside each country against a communist uh, subversion. And the last point that I really have time to, to briefly mention is that um, the human rights violations uh, preceded the military coups because we can see um, human rights repression already starting in Uruguay from the late 1960s and in Argentina also around the same time in the early 1970s. So although uh, human rights violations uh, predated the military coups, it's... Um, 
we can easily see that once these military regimes were installed, there was a peak in the human rights violations and the uh, repression. So on the slide I have some details relating to the human uh, rights repressions and some of the key features. And although there were some similarities in Argentina and Uruguay, as we have, for example, torture being perpetrated very uh, widely in both countries, nonetheless, uh, the repression in each country had a defining feature. So while in Argentina there was a systematic policy of disappearances of person, in Uruguay, on the other hand, the key element of the repression was really long-term imprisonment of people. So now I'm going to briefly talk about each of the three phases that I was mentioning a little while ago. And Really, uh, I think the starting point for all of this work was a puzzle that I had in my mind because I looked at Arge Argentina and Uruguay and I could see that they lived uh, broadly through rather similar military dictatorships and there were comparable uh, types of human rights crimes and human rights violations despite the differences that I just mentioned a little while ago. Nonetheless, once when we get to the time of transition, we see really different policies of transitional justice being adopted. So I tried to explain why, why we see this difference. And I think this is when the explanatory framework that I was talking about really comes in uh, being useful because it helps us provide parts of the answers, uh, parts of the answer to my puzzle. So the first element that I looked at in this comparison was the mode of transition, uh, the way in which a country moves from authoritarian rule or conflict to a new democratic setting. And in the case of Argentina, this is really exceptional because the Argentine transition stands out in the region for being so different. In fact, um, in Argentina, we don't have negotiations, as we would later see in Uruguay or Chile. But the armed forces were not totally defeated either. So we have a situation that I, I like to label peculiar collapse. In fact, although Argentina is militarily defeated in the Falklands War in June 1982, nonetheless, over 15 months still passed between this military defeat and the democratic handover in 1983. And this rather long interval demonstrates how the military still possessed enough power to supervise the process of democratic transition while organizing their orderly retreat from power. And surely they definitely had enough time to pass a self-amnesty law for the crimes they had committed and also to destroy uh, parts of the archives of the military repression. Nonetheless, the collapse of the regime does initially create some more room for accountability and policies of transitional justice, unlike in other countries. 
In addition to this, I think that the president, the figure of the president becomes really essential and this is very much so in Argentina because President Alfonsín, who was the candidate of the radical party in Argentina at the national elections, is really the candidate that had demonstrated the greater commitment to human rights and the one that had been calling more strongly for accountability relating to the crimes of the past. Alfonsín had been saying that you couldn't restore democracy on the basis of immorality. Alfonsín had a personal commitment to human rights. In 1975, he had been a founding member of the Permanent Assembly for Human Rights, and throughout the dictatorship, he had been a lawyer to political prisoners. So once the democratic transition happens, the government of Alfonsín adopts a legal strategy that had three elements. Number one was the uh, prosecution of both guerrilla leaders for homicide, illicit association and attacks against public order and the prosecution of nine military commanders for homicide, unlawful deprivation of freedom and torture. Alfonsin's vision of prosecutions was that these had to be carried out by the military institution itself, a sort of policy of self-judgment or self-purification so that the uh, armed forces could be reintegrated and rehabilitated into the uh, democratic arena. Furthermore, trials had to be restricted in duration and scope to officers in a command position and those that had committed atrocious or aberrant acts, applying the principles of due obedience and the levels of responsibility. This policy um, didn't really happen as it was envisioned when it actually encountered the reality and the political issues that Argentina had to face. Nonetheless, the trial of the military commanders that happened between 1984 and 1985 was a noteworthy policy success for Argentina, especially when we think that Latin America had traditionally been characterized by amnesia and impunity had traditionally been the norm in this region. Furthermore, in terms of truth, the uh, Alfonsin government establishes uh, in 1983 the National Commission on Disappearance of People, which was the first truth commission to attract international attention and submit a final report to the president. To the president, sorry. In this picture, it's important to look at civil society and in Argentina, human rights groups, groups had a long history because the first one was established uh, towards the end of the 1930s. Furthermore, during the uh, whole years of the dictatorship, we see the establishment of a large number of uh, human rights groups and in particular victim groups uh, like the grandmothers and the mothers or the relatives. And these groups were really instrumental 
in depicting the repression as a policy of human rights violations, challenging the military narrative of a legitimate war against uh, subversion. During a transition, although there were some disagreements between the human rights groups and the government, especially in relation to the Truth Commission, nonetheless these groups were fundamental because they provided a corpus of evidence and testimony and various testimonies, both of the survivors and the relatives of the missing, that helped reconstruct the policy of state terror and was therefore essential for both the uh, Truth Commission and for the conviction of the military commanders. And where were the armed forces at this time? As I was saying a little while ago, the uh, armed forces um, emerged from the experience of holding power humiliated not only militarily for their defeat in the Falklands War, but also politically. In fact, especially in the last few years of the regime, there had been several disagreements between the army, the navy and the armed forces regarding the economic and political goals of the regime, and there were also uh, power struggles. So in the early 1980s, the uh, armed forces are very much uh, broken and very much divided. However, in the mid and late 1980s, we see how the armed forces begin to recover from this situation of political and military defeat. In particular, the human rights trials were perceived as attacking the military's corporate identity and sort of pulled the armed forces back together from their uh, disagreements. And so we see between 1987 and 1990 a number of military rebellions, actually four of them to be precise, that were in part, and particularly the first one in 1987, a direct consequence of the human rights trials. However, it's still important to remember that at least the first of the two amnesty laws in Argentina is from 1986, so the year before the first military rebellion. So it's important to keep this in mind in showing how the government was already trying to limit judicial uh, proceedings. And of course, the military rebellions um, played a, a further role in that, leading to the enactment of the second amnesty law that effectively, effectively brought all judicial proceedings to an end. And what was happening just across uh, the river plate from Argentina in Uruguay? Well, in Uruguay we have a rather different situation and I really generally like to say that the trajectory of transitional justice in Uruguay was very much Uruguayan. And what does that mean? Well, Uruguay was a country that had the traditional culture of reaching consensus. It was a country of pact with a long practice of negotiations, agreements. And this also happens at the end of military rule when we see two rounds of negotiations. A failed one in July 1983 and a successful one in August 1984 that results in the Navy Club Pact, 
which was signed by the representatives of the armed forces and three political parties. This pact in itself is not really innovative uh, because it basically restores the political system that was in place before the authoritarian parenthesis. Nonetheless, this uh, pact is really important in terms of transitional justice because in a way it sets the limits that uh, policies of transitional justice could have. In fact, by signing a pact with the armed forces, politicians gave them a recognition of power and in particular legitimized the armed forces as a political actor. As a consequence of signing this pact, thus any future democratic executive would find it very hard and very difficult to break the rules of the negotiated transition and promote the trial of one of the parties to the pact. And this was very unlikely to happen in Uruguay also because the candidate that won national elections in Uruguay in 1984 was very different from Alfonsín in Argentina. The election of Julio Maria Sanguinetti reduced the chances of achieving justice from the very beginning. In fact, while in Argentina Alfonsín was trying to uh, mark a clear break with the past, in Uruguay Sanguinetti emphasized something else. He emphasized peaceful change. And according to this perspective, the consolidation of democracy involved steering well clear of any revision of the past because demands for truth and justice would cause institutional destabilization and provoke the armed forces. From the beginning, Sanguinetti stated that he wouldn't undertake any official policies, but it would neither prevent the presentation of individual cases to the courts. The focus of Sanguinetti's administration was, as I was saying, national pacification and the consolidation of democracy. In fact, in early 1985, the government adopts an amnesty law that releases all political prisoners and facilitates the return of the hundreds uh, of exiles that had left the country and their social reintegration. There was, as I was saying, no specific government policy of on accountability, and therefore, as early as April 1985, so a month into the democratic transition, we see individuals presenting denunciations of human rights abuses to the courts either relating to themselves or their loved ones. Just over a year later, the courts were investigating over 700 such cases. And thus, the government began to present a number of bills to Parliament to try to prevent or at least limit prosecutions. But all of these proposals failed to be passed in Parliament. By late 1986, we see that thus the armed forces are becoming increasingly, increasingly restless and they make it very clear that summoned officers would, will refuse to appear before the courts. 
the head of the army even said very clearly that he was keeping judicial summons in his personal safe and he would not transmit them to um, relevant officials. As you probably have already figured out, the Uruguayan armed forces, because of the logic of a negotiated transition, unlike a collapsed uh, transition in Argentina, they were in a much stronger position, exactly because they had negotiated their way out of power. And the first democratic government in Uruguay really had the feeling of a sort of guarded democracy because of the still strong presence of the armed forces. So because of this situation and the increasing chance of institutional stability, the government attempts another uh, bill in parliament and just a couple of hours before a military official was due to appear in court, the government adopts on December 22, 1986, the amnesty law through which the government renounces its right to prosecute past human rights crimes. It was in, this, uh, in the aftermath of the amnesty law that the Uruguayan human rights movement really plays a fundamental role for accountability. As I was saying, the government couldn't find a suitable way to deal with human rights crimes and the human rights groups sort of stepped in, in a sense. The first uh, contribution that they, uh, that, they or, that they carried out was between 1987 and 1989 when a grassroots uh, movement composed not only of human rights groups but also trade unions, uh, victims groups and hundreds of, volu of volunteers gathered a required number of signatures to hold a referendum on the amnesty law. The referendum eventually takes place on April 16th, uh, 1989, when the amnesty law is uh, retained. Secondly, also a, a Uruguayan NGO called the Peace and Justice Service um, releases its own uh, Truth Commission report. As I was saying, there was no truth commission from the government, so this NGO steps in and carries out a wide survey uh, talking to over 300 political prisoners and with the help of academics, uh, they provide a complete account of the human rights repression and attempt to gather victim testimonies for the future. So while Argentina and Uruguay had two different starting points, by the early 1990s, when we get to the second phase of transitional justice, these two countries are in a similar situation of impunity and silence that will only begin to change starting from the mid-late 1990s. In Argentina, in 1990, there is a new president, uh, President Menem, and he had a completely different approach than uh, Alfonsin. And Menem clearly wished to close the books on the past. In particular, if you remember, I was talking just a little while ago about the military rebellions that took place in the late 1990s. And Menem comes up with a strategy to deal with the armed forces, a sort of trade-off. Menem was willing to forgive and forget 
past human rights crimes, but it would punish and would not tolerate any future disobedience. So as two sets of pardons are adopted in 1989 and 1990 to, uh, to, um, in relation to people prosecuted and in relation to the uh, condemned military commanders. And this trade-off was uh, rather successful because after the last rebellion in 1990, we see no further uprisings in Argentina. But as a consequence of that, during Menem's first mandate until 1994, the subject of the past is virtually off the agenda, with, only a pro with limited progress, only in less confrontational aspects of accountability such as reparations and the case of illegally appropriated children. Between 1991 and 1994, the government adopts a comprehensive policy of reparations, with compensation being paid initially to victims of illegitimate detention and then to the heirs of the disappeared. In particular, a 1994 law was pioneering for creating the status of absence by forced disappearance. And this was an unprecedented legal status that was created to help the victim's relatives that had to solve legal hurdles relating to their missing relatives. It was during Menem's second mandate uh, between 1994 and 1999 that the question of the past resurfaced in Argentina, but this was not because of a government's wish, but rather because unexpected events happened both at home and abroad. In March 1995, retired Navy Captain Aldolfo Silingo broke the military pact of silence by publicly confessing on TV and in a book uh, with famous journalist Horacio Verbisky to having taken part in two death flights during which uh, he threw uh, 30 people alive but drugged to their death into the open seas. This, this confession shook the military institution and resulted in a mea culpa by the army commander Balsa in April 1995. Balsa acknowledged the crimes of the repression and soon after also the Navy and Air Force commanders admitted how unacceptable errors and horrors had been committed in the fight against subversion. This confession was important, but it should be kept in mind that only probably less than a dozen officers did confess to their crimes. So the pact of silence remained rather strong within the institution. What, did, uh, what this confession did very much was actually creating a more favorable situation to accountability. And in this context, we see human rights groups really playing a fundamental role, sometimes even developing new and creative ways to challenge the dominant situation of silence and impunity. I'm going to briefly talk about three initiatives because I don't have time to look at all of them, but these are quite important. 
The first one was the establishment in the mid-1990s of IJOS, a victims group composed of the sons and daughters of the missing, but also exiles and other victims of state terrorism. This new association brings new and younger voices to the ongoing discussion on the recent past. And in particular, their method of scratching public shaming was especially important in making society aware of the continued consequences of state terrorism. And particularly, Scratche exposed the comfortable life of impunity enjoyed by the repressors. Scratche represents a form of social justice and social accountability that, in addition to exposing impunity, criticizes the lack of justice. And this is embodied in the core slogan of Si no hay justicia hay Scratche. If there is no justice, there will be a scratch. The second NGO was the Grandmother's NGO that had been established in 1977 to identify the so-called missing grandchildren. The Grandmothers estimate that approximately 500 newborn babies had been appropriated during state terrorism and approximately 103 have recovered the, their true identity so far. Given that the crime of child stealing and identity theft was not covered by the 1987 Jubidian's law, prosecutions could still be initiated in relation to these crimes. This was not easy, however, and cases lingered for many years during the 1990s to the point that one of the grandmothers that I interviewed told me how between themselves they used to say that their grandchildren were growing up in the boxes and dispatches of the judges because proceedings were left dormant for so many years. A breakthrough occurred in 1998 when both retired generals Videla and Masera were eventually charged and arrested in relation to the abduction of missing children. Finally, the Center for Legal and Social Studies, or CELS, was a fundamental actor as well for pioneering uh, the right to truth and achieving the unconstitutionality of the amnesty laws. In the mid-1990s, the cells began arguing that although the amnesty laws blocked criminal proceedings, family members still retained the right to know the truth about the, f the fate of their loved ones, and society more widely had the right to know uh, about the methodology of state terrorism. So thanks to a, a friendly settlement brokered by the Inter-American Commission on Human Rights in 1999, Argentina agreed to accept and guarantee the right to truth and exhaust all means to obtain information on the disappeared. So since then, the so-called truth trials, a sort of hybrid between prosecutions and truth commission, have been taking place. These are uh, judicial proceedings that simply wish to establish the fate of the disappeared. There is no sentence, no or defendants, but people are summoned to appear before the court to give testimony. Finally, 
Um, the cells uh, were successful in achieving the unconstitutionality of the amnesty laws. These laws had already been derogated in 1998, but this only prevented their future application and their effects remained as far as past judicial proceedings were concerned. So once again, the cells pioneers a legal argument, drawing upon the case of illegally appropriated Claudia Poblete. The cells pointed to a fundamental contradiction in the Argentine judicial system. The judiciary could hold criminal res responsible those responsible uh, sorry could hold criminally re criminally responsible those that had kidnapped Claudia and altered her identity, but the courts could not prosecute those that had murdered and disappeared Claudia's parents the original crime that had later given rise to the crime of kidnapping. So in March 2001, Judge Cavallo declares the amnesty laws unconstitutional for violating human rights provisions and the constitution of Argentina. But however, this first instance decision was only applicable to the Poblete case. Around this time, or just before, um, we should remember that at the international level we are uh, dealing with the question of the arrest of Pinochet in London. And furthermore, uh, human rights NGOs in Argentina looked abroad uh, to begin prosecutions. Given the situation of impunity at home, what these NGOs uh, tried to do um, was to open up judicial proceedings in European countries given the ancestry of many uh, Argentine citizens. So in the late 1990s we see various cases and various, various trials happening in Italy, France, Germany, Sweden and uh, Spain. And the use of trials abroad was particularly important in trying to break up the situation of impunity at home. In Uruguay, we also see a similar pattern in Argentina because we begin with a situation of silence and impunity, which then is challenged in the mid-1990s. The loss at the 99 referendum on the amnesty law inaugurated a long period of silence because the vote was largely perceived as sealing the question both politically and legally. A member of the uh, Frente Amplio party that I interviewed in 2007 recalled how the feeling was brutal a conviction that impunity was a natural state of affairs that couldn't be changed and you had to look at other things. This situation of impunity and uh, silence didn't even change when we have pronouncements by international bodies such as the Inter-American Commission on Human Rights and UN Human Rights Committee that, considering the case of Uruguay, recommend effective measures to clarify the events and the crimes of the past and find those responsible. We have such um, denouncements and such sentences 
although they are uh, not sentencing as much as reports in the case of the UN, in 1992, 1993, 1994, and 1998. Uruguay doesn't do much uh, to comply with these um, reports, but nonetheless, the repeated uh, um, concern by international bodies does create a situation of spotlight on impunity in this country. The reactivation of the question of the past in Uruguay, as in Argentina, emerges in light of both uh, regional, local and international factors. Regionally, the impact of the military confessions in Argentina in 1995 reverberates in Uruguay as well, as the vast majority of Uruguay that went missing were disappeared while in exile or in hiding in Buenos Aires. So these confessions immediately mobilized uh, some politicians and the human rights groups that called for the first march of silence. In a situation of complete impunity, Montevideo's main avenue is flooded by thousands of people that called for uh, the clarification of the crimes of the past. In addition to the Pinochet arrest that I was mentioning uh, just before, at this time we can see that the regional context was characterized already by, by a reactivation of the question of the past. Throughout the region, human rights activists were exchanging lessons and adopting similar strategies in challenging impunity. In particular, they tried to identify exceptions to the amnesty laws, such as economic crimes, um, the cases of missing children, or crimes by the high-ranking officers of the dictatorships, which would allow for the amnesty laws to be bypassed and to be able to begin in judicial proceedings. At the national level, we see a second government by Sanguinetti between 1995 and 2000, and as 10 years before, we have the similar approach, meaning that there was no interest whatsoever in questions of accountability. And although there were various proposals, such as a truth commission or even mediation by the Catholic Church, the government always responding, always responded by saying that the amnesty law made further investigation impossible and that these proposals would only threaten democratic uh, peace. By the late 1990s, the spotlight was on Uruguay again because the Argentine poet Juan Helman, who had been looking, he had been looking for his missing granddaughter, and she was presumed to have been born in Uruguay and to be living there. So Helman asked Sanguinetti for help, but Sanguinetti vehemently denied that any of uh, Helman's missing relatives could be in Uruguay. Unexpectedly, in 2000, when a new government takes over, uh, the president Jorge Valle announces that he had been able to locate Macarena Helman, indeed living in Montevideo, where she had been raised by a policeman and his family. So this was quite important, in particularly, uh, particularly for this, the, because the cases of missing children were quite emotional. And the budget administration was actually the first 
to actually display a timid interest in finding a solution to the question of the disappeared. It was only in 2000, so 15 years since the democratic transition, that the first ever official mechanism of transitional justice was adopted in Uruguay. The Peace Commission was a sort of truth commission and was established to receive and, and analyze information regarding disappearances under military rule. Despite many criticisms, this uh, Peace Commission still remains the first official initiative through which the state actually acknowledged for the first time that the human rights repression even took place. And finally, in 2002, we see how the strategy of the human rights groups finally pays off because through the exception of a civilian leader, we see the first charges ever being brought for human rights crimes of the dictatorship against the foreign minister of the military government in Uruguay. And this was 17 years since the transition, so it was quite an important event. So we now get to the final and third phase of the uh, present challenge of transitional justice and here too, like in the previous phase, we see a similar pattern in both Argentina and Uruguay because um, before the situation of impunity and silence begins to be challenged and in this third phase we see how this trend of accountability is consolidated although in both cases there are still problems. In Argentina in 2003 the quest for accountability finds an unexpected ally in President Nestor Kirchner that surprisingly backs efforts to resume prosecutions for state terrorism. Kirchner creates a climate favorable to accountability and by relying on on the president, president of the nullification of the junta's self-amnesty law in 1983, which was declared by the democratic government as null and void in December 1983, in a similar way in August 2003, the Argentine Congress adopts a law that declares the two amnesty laws as null as if they had never, had never existed. Nonetheless, a final decision rested with the Supreme Court that in June 2005 upheld the constitutionality of this law while declaring at the same time the two amnesty laws unconstitutional for being contrary to international human rights norms and the Argentine constitution. The pardons, of, the pardons of Menem have suffered a similar fate because they were challenged in court and considered null and void with sentences by the Supreme Court in 2007 and 2010. Since 2006, judicial proceedings have thus resumed and the judiciary has finally been allowed to play an increasingly important role in accountability, dictating sentences very much in line with human rights jurisprudence. As you can see, as you can see from the on the slide, 
in just under five years since the beginning of trials, there have been over 1,700 people charged with human rights crimes, 173 have been condemned, 15 acquitted, and a few of them are in, hundreds of them are in pre-trial detention. There have been recently some significant sentences relating, for example, to the uh, Plan Condor and the detention centers in Buenos Aires, but nonetheless, uh, the situation of prosecutions remains uh, problematic because the speed of the trials is very slow and it's been estimated that at this speed it would still take about 20 years to complete all the cases that have been happening. The armed forces have, as a consequence of reforms and changes throughout the 1990s, played a less important role and they and we could say that they have been effectively brought under a civilian control. Trials abroad relating to Argentina have also take, continued to take place, particularly in Spain and Italy. And in Spain, the uh, of officer Silingo, the officer that confessed to his crimes in the mid-1990s, was actually condemned to 640 years in prison in relation to 30 mur murders. In Uruguay, we also see a similar trend where there is an executive that is at least more inclined to make progress on the question on, of the past. And really, compared to the uh, first 15 years of democracy, well, first 20 years of democracy in Uruguay, so much has happened that I cannot possibly summarize it in a few words. So I'm just going to highlight a couple of points. Firstly, when the, in 2005 the left-wing Frente Amplio party wins the election, uh, this raised hopes that the, ha that the time had come for truth and justice. And although President Vasquez didn't abolish the amnesty law, as many had hoped, he decided to work within this framework. In particular, he adopted an unprecedented interpretation of the law, and while previous governments always included all cases under the amnesty laws, this executive has, ex has excluded a number of cases, such as crimes committed outside Uruguay, those committed by the high-ranking uh, officers of the dictatorships, economic crimes, and crimes committed before the military takeover. So as a consequence of this, many cases have uh, been opened and investigated by the courts. Under Vasquez, we also find the first two bodies of the missing and excavations continue. There has also been legislation that was very much overdue relating to reparations being adopted and also the acknowledgement for the first time in 2009 of the crimes of state terrorism. The armed forces were also in 2005 ordered to carry out investigations into the fate of the disappeared and their reports, although incomplete and possibly providing uh, partial information, were nonetheless very significant because the armed forces acknowledged for the very first time the use of torture in military sites they talked of the des desaparecidos, they talked of death under torture, 
the legal transfer of prisoners from Argentina back to Uruguay, and also the, the practice of clandestine burial sites and cremation of human remains. So though these reports were not apologies or mea culpas, they still were significant. Even though the executive has become more active in human rights issues, human rights groups have retained a and a proactive attitude because they still perceived that what the government was doing was not enough. So we see a second campaign for signatures and a second vote on the amnesty law exactly 20 years after the 1985 referendum. At the 2009 plebiscite, 48% um, of Uruguayans voted to uh, annul the amnesty law, but this was not enough. Differently from 1989, however, uh, the defeat at the ballot box actually um, spurred human rights activism and we have seen the emergence of new human rights groups that are, are in a state of permanent mobilization against the amnesty law. As a consequence of the new interpretation of the amnesty law by the government, we have seen an increasing role for the judiciary and significantly uh, both civilian and military leaders of the military regime are now being prosecuted and we've had several significant sentences and in particular in February last year we had the former dictator Bordaverri that was the one leading the coup in 1973 with the armed forces being sentenced for his role in the coup and for attacking the Uruguayan national constitution. The Supreme Court has also been fundamental in dictating three sentences of unconstitutionality of the amnesty law in 2009 and 2010, considering the uh, Uruguayan amnesty law as unconstitutional in various specific cases, about uh, 20 cases, in relation uh, for violating human rights norms that Uruguay has voluntarily ratified, but also the Uruguayan constitution. And finally, the international level has become important for Uruguay because, as I was mentioning before about the Hellman case, after uh, Juan Hellman found his missing granddaughter, together with her they lodged a case through the inter-American system because of the repeated failures and denials of justice in Uruguay. So they filed this case firstly through the Commission in 2006 and then this uh, was presented by the Commission to the Court in 2010. The case related both to Macarena and to her missing um, and her the alteration of her identity, but also her missing mother. And in uh, March 2011, the Inter-American Court of Human Rights releases its sentence in the Hellman case. And in line with previous jurisprudence in this respect, such as the Barrio Saltos case in particular, the Inter-American court underscored how the Uruguayan amnesty law is invalid and should no longer constitute an obstacle in the investigation of the events in question and the identification and sanction of those responsible for them. 
In particular, the court stressed how the amnesty law was invalid not only in the Hellman case that was being presented to the court, but how the law cannot have a similar effect in relation to other cases of, of grave human rights abuses that may have occurred in Uruguay. So it's quite innovative in that sense. So just a couple of words to conclude. I hope I was able to show you in my talk how in Argentina and Uruguay transitional justice initiatives emerged and evolved often unpredictably over time during the past 30 years. They rarely followed conventional patterns over this time. And I think the use of this explanatory framework was helpful in helping us unpack the different transitional justice initiatives and to see how these often resulted from the interaction among factors, actors and power balances at the national, regional and international levels. Finally, many of my interviewees in Argentina and Uruguay argued how transitional justice could be seen as cumulative because each initiative always built up upon previous achievements and often complemented them. Thank you very much.